0: Thor Sama Sambhottasana Mortasa Bhagavad Thor Arahad Thor Sama Sambhottasana Mortasa Bhagavad Thor Sama Sambhottasa Uthang Tamang Sang on the conditioned world and then reiterate the meaning of world in Buddhist terms means uh, what we create out of ignorance in our minds so in that way in some sense we each create our own world that's why we was saying that we are the center and we can create a totally false and deluded world uh, based on fears and desires or we can not create anything out of fear and desire and be the knowing of the, the flow of life, the way things are. This is the, what we mean by refuge, to let go of that basic delusion in which we create uh, and compound the present moment always with something of our own, out of our own fear and desire. We have a, we actually have a choice. We can be just the conditioned creatures, the Pavlovian dog, or we can choose not to be. We can be enlightened beings. So this is what, what we're here for, I hope. But you don't want to become a conditioned, I mean, you know, slightly better than salivating when the bell rings, but not much. Just when Just when, we're, when we have this opportunity to transcend uh, the conditioning process. Which doesn't mean we get rid of conditions, but then there's the, the insightful knowing and perfect understanding of Dhamma, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. Now, when we look at, say, at these flowers, these lovely chrysanthemums, as, as something, say, when we project something onto it, then it, we're creating something that isn't that is, uh, say, extra to the actual existence of this plant. But so that uh, we 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 might believe that the word chrysanthemum is somehow uh, what it really is—that uh, because we call it that, we think maybe that's the the reality of it—is it's a chrysanthemum because you have a name for it, isn't it? That's rose chrysanthemum. And then we under, we really know what it is now because we have we have a label, a name that we give it. What if it was some kind of flower that we'd never seen before? And we, we wonder what kind of flower that is because we wouldn't. We, the tendency of the conditioned mind out of ignorance is always to to put a name onto something, fit it into a, categ- a conditioned category so that it, if it looks like, a, this is kind of rose-like or chrysanthemum-like, but it's not exactly, it looks like one of those, maybe it could be something from Australia, the different kind of flora there. And uh, we go on speculating about about it what it, wanting to give it a name. But in, as Dhamma, it is what it is, isn't it? When, when the eye contacts this plant, it's just this way, that's consciousness. There's beauty in consciousness, isn't there? It's a beautiful plant. So beauty is there. But we're not, that immediately we, we think, isn't it beautiful? Uh, and we, and then we go on in, in with that kind of thinking. Then we we tend to no longer really be with its beauty because we're we're, we're saying something about it. We're adding something on to it, uh, which usually is conveys one's own opinion and one's particular bias and view. Say, well, I've seen more beautiful chrysanthemums than that. That's a I've seen, I was at the garden show the other day, and it was, it was almost, much better mum than this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't like chrysanthemums; I much prefer roses. Whatever, there's something extra added on from our own personal world that we create. When, as uh, uh, when the mind is, is, say, when we know the difference, when we see the dhamma, then we see. The 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 dhamma of beauty and of the, and the, and and it speaks to us in its own right for what it is. We're not expecting it to speak from the position of being the most perfect chrysanthemum ever grown on this planet, but from whatever it has to offer, it's offering to us. We're receptive to its message in whatever state it happens to be in. Like now, these these roses aren't so beautiful now today, are they? pretty droopy yesterday they were vibrant like that now they're like that so when we when we those roses have had it let's see. <laughs> throw them out anything I can't stand is a wilted rose they don't like roses never last very long do they not like chrysanthemums. <laughs> <laughs> chrysanthemums just seem to stay that way for ages and get tired of them. But, <laughs> but even in its droopy stage, it's still, if we're, if we're not caught up in our own world, creating a world, our own views around it, then also it's, it, has, it has something it's offering to us. In, in, through consciousness of it. Because the whole process of, from birth to death, from the arising to the maturing to the full flowering to the fading to the rotting and all that, that's all Dhamma to us when the mind is free from this creating a world out of desire and fear. And then, when the mind is free, then everything is dhamma for us. The whole process of life, evil is dhamma, and good is dhamma, and and birth, newborn babies, and and old uh, senile uh, people, and and uh, cripples, and healthy people, and men and women, and and everybody, everything is dhamma rather than something. Then I have pin- strong opinions about and prefer this over that. As a, on a personal world that we create, then we have strong opinions about all kinds of things. You can see we live in a time where people really express all their opinions quite openly. So we have, you know, endless conflicts and, and disagreements because people have different ways of looking at things, and and uh, and then the opinions. You know, differ, and then we become angry and upset over uh, we're fighting um, from two different worlds. Sounds like one of those soap operas, doesn't it? We come from two different worlds. <laughs> 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 uh, I remember seeing one of the uh, Chinese films when I lived in in Southeast Asia. Uh, a kind of melodramatic Chinese films produced in Hong Kong. the story of this Chinese artist who falls in love with a Japanese woman. And the classic line was, uh, It can never be. We come from two different worlds. <laughs> You're Japanese and I'm Chinese. <laughs> No, in a way, that's true. When one is putting emphasis on, on, uh, on those kind of issues, then there is, a, there is definitely two different worlds we have to deal with. And if we don't know that, then we tend to be endlessly frustrated and, and annoyed by life, because we somehow think maybe our world is what everybody's world should be, the way I see everything is is the way I assume everyone else sees everything, or should. And then you you feel uh, angry or upset or indignant about the fact that people don't always see it uh, or agree with the, the way you see the world or the world you've created. Because the real world, the quote, real world, unquote, is our world, isn't it? When people talk about say, accuse our, us here, the Samanas ramavati of not living in the real world. It means that we don't live in their world, which is real for them. <laughs> That's what they mean, isn't it? Because they regard their world as real, and our world as not being real. But any of the worlds are unreal. They're all illusory worlds. Because then we, when we see in the right way, but then we see Dhamma rather than create a world. We can still use conventions, uh, but the conventions then are coming from wisdom rather than from ignorance. So one can still use the English language and, and, uh, and English conventions and so forth, but it's, it's then not just a, a, a habitual conditioned reaction to life, that we're using social conventions or language, but it's skillful use of these conventions for what is what is true and good and beautiful, rather than to divide and separate and uh, create endless, endless delusions around ourselves and in the minds of others. our minds tend to be very conditioned with ideals so that uh, we have, we expect a lot from life, actually, most of us, because we have these ideals. Um, and this is just a reflection for you, just, just to, so you can contemplate your own, uh, what, what suffering is for you. If this helps, then then, then use it. But, like the ideals uh, we have uh, for how life should be. Just like dem- democratic systems and communism and socialism are all based on very high-minded ideas. Uh, now even though one uh, has been brought up as an American, which means you are brought up to hate communism and regard it as the, uh, the focus of evil in the world, uh, and uh, think it's just totally evil. Actually, when you examine communism and, and what it was its original purpose and, and what Marx had in mind, it's very idealistic. I mean, it's to try to, to bring a kind of perfect society into being, perfectly equal and fair society into being where nobody is, is preferred, everybody is equal and, and all things are shared. And there's, no, there's nothing, you know, eventually to that ideal state where, where we're all, uh, you know, perfectly happy living in a perfect society where everything is perfect and, and uh, there's no unfairness, injustice, inequality at all the ideal goal. But then look what happened when it was imposed upon a country, a people, a group of people. And it became a tyranny, didn't it? It be rather than being a liberating system, it became an oppressive one. Why? Why didn't it? Why didn't it liberate when it's such when it's based on such high-minded views and, and ideas? And then we realize that that high-minded ideas, if imposed on anyone, become a tyranny. Just like morality, isn't it? If, if, if I, if I uh, the, what we most fear about the word morality is the kind of old Puritanical Victorian version where, uh, you know, you, you have to keep, you have to be moral, otherwise you're going, God's going to punish you, fire and brimstone, Eternal damnation, most horrendous uh, uh, things that God does to you for being immoral, so if you really want to get out of that, you have to be moral so so that even though morality is a good thing, uh, it becomes oppressive, we feel oppressed by it, everybody's telling us what we have to do and uh, and we we don 't know how to cope with our feelings or instinctual nature at all. We don't we're just told that they like sexual desires or this is wrong or bad or dirty or or that these impulses we feel and so forth are are evil and if we follow them the devil's going to get us and we're going to burn for eternity in hell. So morality becomes moralistic. Rather than a liberating convention, it becomes Something that oppresses us, something that makes us kind of hip uh, frightened and hypocritical about everything as we we might be doing those things, but we we don't want anyone to know everything is under cover behind the curtains, and the pretence of being moral and upright is the is what we show to the world you know the the image is is because we, we don't want to be criticized or threatened by the by the, by the vicar, <laughs> or the neighbors, you know, watching out through the curtains, the lace curtains, to see who went in the house, and who, who comes out early in the morning, and all this. So, <laughs> so that we people are looking, when, you're, when you've been oppressed by morality, you can't help but get a kick out of watching other people be immoral.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Not much, you know, you really can't do it as a kind of honest kind of enjoyment of pornography. You have to kind of do it in a kind of, you know what I saw. <laughs> Isn't that disgusting? Oh, dreadful. Isn't that disgusting? What did, what, what did she do again? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that disgusting? <laughs> 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 you know, at that time, we were all pretty high on being disgusted, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's, because it becomes a kind of hypocrisy, and that's what we mo— we feel it's dishonest, isn't it? We feel it—it's it's oppressive. Morality then is tainted with that kind of perception. But in when you. When you're presenting morality as a reflection and as a, way to, as a way to understand things, then we see it as something that helps us. And that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to be a help for us. It's a tool for helping us to develop and act in the right way, ways that are skillful and good and a benefit to ourselves and others. So then we enjoy it, we love morality because it, it's happy it makes us respect. it allows us to respect ourselves and to feel good about our lives and it's not oppressive it's not uh, doesn't bring out mean n- and nasty and states of mind or, hypo- or hypocrisy because it's, it's coming from the heart from, and from an understanding of its use and its purpose and a, an appreciation for it because even though we've made evil look like it's very tantalizing and that somehow you have have uh, I remember in my youth they used to have pop songs on the radio where uh, some kind of vampish voice would come out singing about how how uh, you know how I want to be evil I want to and you know, all this kind of kind of attractive glamour of, around evil, uh, fascinating and interesting, and and, it, and of course one when you're young you think yeah evil is a lot more interesting than goodness, isn't it? I mean it's something about doing something sinful is kind of exciting, <laughs> <laughs> but doing something good yeah, doesn't doesn't excite you, because. In our society, sin and evil, these things, immorality, is oftentimes made to even appear quite glamorous, and uh, and it's, it's a way to really ex- assert yourself and be free to do all the things that nobody else dares do. But on further reflection, when you when you reflect on evil actions and that, then you realize that there's. That uh, that uh, evil thoughts or evil actions or speech, there is something in us that we can't respect. We lose respect for ourselves, and we and we create uh, a life around. We create division and mistrust around us. How can you trust anyone who who is immoral? Isn't it your measure of trust uh, falls away in confidence in them because say, say uh, just the second precept of stealing. How can you trust anyone who you know steals? It might be, uh, you know, they might be proving their free spirits to do what they want, but in a society where you have to live with each other, you, all you can do is feel when a thief comes into the room is, did, I put <laughs> did you lock the door? <laughs> because they create around them that that feeling of mistrust and the, and then their self-respect also is they have no way to respect themselves because they've not done the thing they've not acted and lived in a way that is worthy of respect and so they tend to create these problems wherever they go difficulties around themselves Where i say a moral life is 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 done in such a way that we find a joyousness in in it. It's not boring and dull and just for kind of silly old people who are afraid to do evil because they might be sent to hell by the devil. It, you know, it's not just the kind of wimpish straits of the world that, <laughs> that are good, but its goodness has a has a beautiful. Result, it it brings joy into our lives. At least I find it so. That be good is an is an honor, and it's something that one loves, loves to do the good, and uh, and one feels grateful that one can do good, that one has has the the opportunity, the occasion, and the possibility for doing good things, and then one reflects on on the result of things that one has done that are not good. And it, it leaves an unpleasant memory in your mind, doesn't it? You have to experience a guilt and remorse and, and also the karmic result of say, that comes up and might, you know, uh, overwhelm us in, in our lives just having lived selfishly or foolishly. And uh, and uh, then we have to bear the consequences of the karma of those actions. But good actions always leave a good result. So I mean, uh, in immediate terms, if you if just thinking a good thought makes you feel good. If you're really aware, if you're really thinking good in a in a and, and meaning it, at that moment you feel very good because it's a, the result is that immediate. And then as we live in a way that we respect ourselves, then people will respect us, and, we, and people like to have us around. People in, enjoy having good people to live with, unselfish, kind, generous people to live with. It's a, it's a joy, it's a pleasure to live in a community but people are that way, like here in the monastery. It's a very pleasant community to live in because people are, really value that goodness and they try to be very good and, to try, and they're very generous and kind. So, and this is a very pleasant, and because of that it's a very pleasant community to live in one is, is doesn't find it a, a place, like I travel a lot and I always enjoy, look forward to coming back here to being with the monks and nuns again, I enjoy their company, I enjoy living with them uh, mm-hmm. where if if they were a bunch of quarreling oafs I'd do everything I could to stay away <laughs> it wouldn't be a nice thought to have to come back here and everybody kind of at each other and And uh, in fact, one is trying to figure out how to stay here more because uh, I'm getting older and I'm not particularly love traveling anymore. But the more I figure out how to stay here, give more time, Amaravati, the more invitations I get (laughs) to go away. respecting yourself is uh, is a necessary uh, ingredient for the holy life and in America I was noticing how many idea of self-respect oftentimes comes not through any to understanding uh, real understanding uh, or living in a way that you respect but in going to psychoanalysts so you get in, a, in California, anyway, people who are go- endlessly going to therapies and, and, and through psychoanalysis so that they can like themselves, so that they, they tend to spend lots of money and do all kinds of things to, say, I, to have the feeling, I really love myself. And people will come out like that. They're not so prone to talk like that here in Britain, but in California, somebody will come out and tell you now, so you don't even know their name. They say, I really love myself. <laughs> who's that <laughs> well, I really like myself it's more like they're trying to convince you of something than the real kind of respect for yourself but just endlessly thinking about yourself and figuring yourself out in, in, in concepts in words through analysis uh, has a, has a, can be of help in one level but it does not allow you to respect yourself. As long as you're paying money to a psychiatrist to sit there and listen to your endless <laughs> regurgitations of your problems <laughs> and, uh, and, and all you're thinking about is yourself, and then I, my father, my mother, and then, then, but you're, and maybe you're working hard to pay, because the psychiatrist is very expensive, so you're making lots of money to, to pay this man or woman to listen to you for an hour, once or twice a week. But you still are going to be left without self-respect, isn't it? Because that's not worthy of respect is it, to, to sit around and talk about yourself and your faults and expect somebody else to kind of do something for you or, or uh, that. So what is worthy of respect? What is it that you really respect in yourself or in others? And so this is, from, this is how I see it anyway, is like, like being moral is worthy. I respect people who really are moral and good who, do, who try to refrain or restrain themselves from doing harmful or saying harmful or divisive things. Who are trying to not act on malicious intentions or selfishness. Those kind of people I respect. And when I'm like that, I respect myself. Even though there's no self. But, <laughs> but on a conventional level, uh, I respect that when i when i rest- refrain from doing and acting in selfish ways and in ways that are cause harm or disruption or confusion to others or out of conceit or pride and stupidity uh, being generous and kind isn 't it when we're when we 're giving when we're when we give things to others and out of just loving to help and serve and and uh, offer, make offerings to others. Then that, that I respect. That in me which which loves to give to others and serve others. I respect that. I don't respect myself when I think others should be serving me. You should, you should be serving me. And what have you done for me? I've given. Look at all I've given you. What have you done for me? And that. that that kind of thing is not worthy i don 't respect that when even though sometimes those thoughts are not absent from my mind <laughs> they it's not it 's not anything I respect uh, in myself I mean that I would want to say follow that up and make my and think of myself as being worthy of somebody else 's respect so say in in the Basis of religious life is the dana thila, or or the uh, generosity, uh, charitableness, and morality, are the very foundations of the holy life. Because this is where, when you when you're kind and generous, unselfish and moral, then you find you'll have a respect for yourself. You won't have to go. To a psychologist, and uh, and try to uh, think to yourself that that you love yourself anymore because you can actually like yourself or respect yourself uh, because of the way you're living and what you're doing and and how you're living your life is worthy of respect. So that that's a reflection on 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 how on what how to. Respect yourself. The importance of that as a, as a foundation for uh, liberation, enlightenment. Now, ours is a time where we, we tend to demand rights. We, this is the age where everybody's demanding their rights. So everybody is going over the top demanding rights. And everybody thinks they have rights. And, and and is demanding them. So, but this is not really worthy of respect, is it? It's uh, it's it's understandable that everybody should want rights. But as a as an actual mental thing in your mind, when I think I have my rights, I want my rights, uh, and and this I I I listen to that, and I don't particularly respect it because. I I don't I don't like the sound of it. It's not something I that I, that arouses inspiration in me when I hear it in others or in in myself. What what I what what inspires me is what what can I do to serve? How can I help? What can I offer? Like when somebody comes into Amravati and and they say. What can I do to help? What can I offer the community? Something you oh that person is really glad to have them. Somebody comes in here demanding their rights. You think what a pain in the neck. So (laughs) so you you really uh, see that 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 demanding rights for yourself maybe uh, you know have its point. But as a religious path, it doesn't work. We don't need rights. Uh, but we need uh, morality. We need to respect ourselves. We need to, because the holy life is not is not uh, the obstacles of holy life are not not because of lack of rights, but because lack of morality or of kindness and generosity. Uh, selfishness and conceit are the obstacles to the holy life. That's that those are the only those are the real obstacles to the holy life so that's a reflection for you to consider because because uh, being an american um one uh, has been brought up to to think one has all kinds of rights and uh, and the, these rights are very important to americans uh so that we we're, we're never satisfied because we always want more rights and we're all, we always think uh, that, that rights are the most important thing for us. And morality is sometimes totally ignored. In fact, we have a right to be immoral <laughs> in America, isn't that it? I have my right to do what I want uh, and, and I'm going to do what I want because it's my right. It's a land of freedom. Uh, i have the right to happiness it says so so i can do what i want because doing what i want i think i'm going to be happy if i can do everything i want and how it affects you if if none of you know it's none of your business what i do because i'm a free independent person with my rights demanding my rights and this of course is a very immature Emotional state, you never grow up if that's where you're stuck, if that's the way you, you feel and look at life from that position of demand uh, on the world, on others. So that the maturing, say, uh, of an individual human being is, is no longer a demand, but an, a willingness and a joy in serving and helping and in doing the good and refraining from doing the bad. That is where we we find our fulfillment as an active living member of a family, of a society. Mm. Contemplating the world that we create or the con- conditioned realm, the conditioned dhammas. We can contemplate the, the 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 fact that that the sensory world is an irritating one. Its its nature is is irritation, agitation. That things contact the senses and the body. I mean, there's, there's the, the sensitive form here that's living and breathing and as always feeling something or other and that's an irritation to the mind. And that no matter, uh, if, as, as long as you're reacting to irritations you, you can't have concentrated mind because you're, you're always feeling some kind of discomfort or, or something, if you, you know, the idea of concentrating your mind, getting your samadhi, you close your eyes, plug up your ears, Go to a sensory deprivation tank, in a cave, anywhere where, where you have the least amount of irritation coming at your your body and senses. And then, when you're when you're not being irritated so much, then you can get a level of tranquility that comes through not just being irritated by everything. So, this is this is, let's say that the, the summer practices of concentrating the mind Oftentimes we have to go off to to places where we can kind of control the environment and with, and try to have try to control it so that there isn't a lot of irritating impingement on us. But then when we when we're reflecting on the way things are, we recognize that that it's actually the, it's naturally, Irritating. It's not a condemnation of the sensory realm. But its very uh, existence and quality uh, is irritating to us. It irritates the mind. So in reflecting in that way, as seen not as a complaint, not as a put-down of the world, but merely as a, as a reflection for the mind. What is irritation? and you realize that you're constantly being irritated. It's too hot, too cold, hunger, uh, having to go to the loo, uh, and just the the uh, pain in the body, you know, if you sit too long, you feel uncomfortable, if you stand too long, if you walk too much, if you even lay down too long, you feel irritated. Uh, the way we don't feel any irritation is by sleeping. Sometimes we get addicted to sleep because we we don't aren't consciously being irritated at that time or drugs and drink are certainly tempting ways of of kind of of say getting beyond the petty irritations then not only on the we we, not only do we feel irritation through the senses but through through our minds. we irritate our minds all the time with i don't like this i don't like that and, and I, this wasn't right. And I don't, I don't approve of this. And why did you ever say that? And we've got inner, inner tyrants or nags. Yeah. There can be an ongoing critic inside one's mind, and this is irritating. To sit here and then the, the critic starts going, "You shouldn't have said that." You're not good enough. Yeah, well, you're too lazy. You don't put enough everything, Who do you think you are? No, 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 no. And it goes in when you start losing. When you're getting really sleepy on an all-night sitting, you kind of it becomes less rational and more kind of balmy.
1: <laughs>
0: Things just don't make sense. A while. You think you're going bonkers. So that having a retentive memory, having to remember things, is we can create that into an irritation for us, which I would say an animal doesn't have, because they don't they don't have retentive memories. Just like the the story of the sheep with the with the lamb being taken away and the the wail, the cry of the of the of the ewe, the loss of her, her baby, her little lamb. And she felt the same angry or great sorrow of separation from the love. But the next day, she couldn't remember it. <sighs> Where if you do that to a human woman, they'll never forget it it'd become a kind of a neurotic obsession. It can make them co- totally ruin their whole lives. If you if you yanked a, a human baby away from a mother, like they do lambs from ewes, the human woman would, would remember it. So she'd suffer the rest of her life. If if she you know she didn't practice Dhamma, she would be she would remember that and become maybe obsessed by the memory. Whereas they, the the you wouldn't remember, but would it still experience the same grief that the human woman would experience. This is a reflection for you: the the wail and cry of anguish of the you was exactly had the same anguish, sorrowful, grief-stricken quality as what you imagine a human woman. To have it the same, under the same circumstances. Totally heartrending scream and cry. And yet, the difference would be, after that, would be one would, wouldn't remember and the other would. So, our memory is, in many ways, a great gift, but it's also an endless torture to us, isn't it? Because we remember something horrible like that, it's hard to forget. You talk to people who've been in the uh, Nazi prison camps during under Hitler, and it's really something you know they they can never forget the horrors and the brutality that they witnessed and experienced. Where if it were a sheep, it would probably would be dead by now don't live very long but we live quite long lives actually so this is this is what what we because we have this memory then it's very important to to be very careful and live our lives in ways that we at least we're not doing things horrible things that we'll have to remember Because we we'll remember, we remember usually the bad things, the very best and the very worst. What we tend to not remember is just the ordinary things. Remember the great successes, and, we'll re- and we also we remember a lot of uh, any failure or or humiliation or unpleasantness. I mean, if, especially if it's a, a extreme, we can always bring it back into our memory. Back into our mind, and so uh, this is this is why it is so uh, advisable to be to be mindful and to to live in a very careful way, rather than just just any old way, just let life happen to you any old way. Uh, that because you have to, if you do that, then you tend to do things that you regret later, and that you will remember. So memory can drive us crazy, we can go, com- be completely neurotic, completely out of touch with anything real just through remembering things. We can create things in our minds, we can fantasize, we can create a whole illusory world that no one else, most of our illusions, people share. I mean, society has a agreed, agreed upon certain illusions we call normal normality and good citizenship and so forth. But <laughs> then there are have private worlds uh that so that we 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 have a creative mind, we we can create things with it. We can remember, we have the the ability we have memory, we have the creative we, uh, imagination, we have memory we have rationality and reason, logic, and we have intuition. And of those four, the intuitive side is, is tends to be the least developed and the least understood in the, in modern humanity. This, this is how I see it. The intuitive uh, mind is tends to have been either rejected or we're suspicious of it we tend to think it it's unreal or it's untrustworthy so we want everything kind of labeled and put down as in, in categories in computerized systems everything neatly filed away on floppy disks now not in file cabinets floppy disks and uh, modern technology is, is allowing our dream to come true, order everything, put everything in a system, systematize everything, and, and that's wonderful, isn't it? We can have it all listed under the alphabet. Everything in the whole universe will be under A to Z. What a, what a success story that is. And, and we'll have names for everything. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to, we'll, have, we'll increase our intelligence, our IQs, our intelligent quotient by doing all kinds of things to our brains, maybe taking certain pills and, and certain kind of genes and, and implants and, and brain transplants and who knows what, just to increase our ability to, to retain more names and labels for everything <laughs> and to be kind of be more kind of immediate uh, automatic in their delivery so you push the button in like a computer uh, we, we 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 love creativity and imagination isn't it we think that's wonderful to to be a creative artist even though what we create isn't worth a hoot <laughs> And even would be best if you didn't bother, <laughs> as far as the rest of the world is concerned, because I mean, oftentimes, our imagine, what we imagine and create is is uh, just from our conceit and our stupidity. So even our creativity is is uh, tends to take a a form that is quite presumptuous and 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 conceited and self-centered. Like art now tends to. One sees the art world very much as a kind of full of conceited people who who want to make a name for themselves, uh, who really have to write their name on everything and say this is my creation, have exhibitions, say these are my creations and this is this is mine. I've done all this. This is. Aren't I creative? Aren't I talented? Because we can. We can. Uh, be quite skillful in the way we use things and so forth, but say, what would be creativity with wisdom? What would be intelligence and intellect reason with wisdom? What would that be like? Would our memories be such irritating things to us if there was wisdom along with it? So, so contemplate that, would, would these, these abilities we have, would they turn on, like they tend to turn on us and overwhelm us and drive us crazy or make us unhappy or discontented when it's coming out of ignorance and self-conceit. Even the most, ta- the most creative talents suffer enormously if, if, when it's coming from, from a selfish intention. But then what would these be like if there's wisdom? And this is what we're, what we're say, contemplating in this retreat, is how to bring wisdom into our lives into, so that our memories are not just experiences of guilt and remorse and depression, so that our creativity can, can, come, can be of great benefit to all sentient beings. So that our um, intelligence, our intellect, can cannot be just a source of fault finding and comparing and blaming, but of, of uh, being able to tell the the, tr- the real from the unreal, being able to discriminate the true from the false, the right from the wrong, as as we experience life. So that our discriminative faculties are working for us rather than against us. And then intuitively this is developing this ability, this total sensitivity because the intuition if allowed, if taken the personal, the personality out of the 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 intuition, the idea that it's personal, then that is a connecting to universality because on the intuitive level, we're one, there's no, there's not two, but on the level of memory and uh, imagination and reason and logic, we, we're endlessly dividing everything up and and, uh, and it's, it tends to make everything seem very separate, very alien to us, very, we feel isolated and alienated and lonely through our attachments to these discriminative functions of the mind. And even even if we happen to be intuitive, quite naturally intuitive, we tend to interpret it from the wrong view. So even intuition makes us super sensitive and we're we're easily being feeling everything too much. If you if you meet really intuitive people they they are they suffer enormously because they they are taking it all in the wrong way. They they tend to to pick up and feel everything and then then see interpret it in a in a in a selfish way. So they become you know they're super sensitive and uh, suffer from from all kinds of things that people who aren't intuitive would never even notice or feel but it's through the the this intuitiveness or mindfulness awareness wisdom that we and that there is no suffering and it's always immediate whenever there's mindfulness there's no suffering whenever there's heedlessness there is suffering right now one heedless moment there's suffering Mindful moment, no suffering. But I don't expect you to believe it. This is for your contemplation. So that you can actually apply this to your own experience of, uh, of uh, as you begin to uh, develop your practice, you, you contemplate this. And when, when there is when there's mindfulness, awareness, and use of wise recollection, I can't find any suffering in my mind at all. Not a speck. But then, then you know, I get carried away with something, I start, oh I can't stand, I don't like that, and, oh, no, no, no. You're suffering again, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> At least, when you practice, you begin to to develop the way of non-suffering, because there isn't ultimately. There's no suffering at all. There is no such thing as suffering. It's all it's it's based on illusion. But it's through through investigating the illusion, the the suffering that we we believe in and we react to and we identify with that we understand it, let it go, realize non-suffering. That's the the sequence. Through understanding suffering, we let it go, and then we realize non-suffering. So that the Buddha aimed his his point, investigate suffering, understand it, and through that you'll let go of it. And through letting go of suffering, you realize non-suffering. So I'll end my talk this evening.